I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior among us. We pray that you draw them to saving faith. We pray for those of us who do know you in this way and pray that we would learn to rejoice and learn to sing and learn to rest in your role as King and Lord of all. We praise you for this opportunity and pray that we'd now feed our souls upon your word. Thank you that we can gather here today and for your people throughout the world as they gather. We pray that your name would be lifted up and exalted. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What on earth is wrong with our nation right now? It's a question probably many of us are asking. As a nation, we seem to be wobbling on a ridge. On the left side is the chasm of socialistic anarchy, conjuring memories of the French Revolution. Wondering sometimes if they're going to get the guillotine out. On the right is the chasm of totalitarian state, conjuring memories of Nazi Germany. I know I'm being a bit dramatic, but as cities burn and as streets are captured by anarchists and historical statues are toppled, does socialistic revolution seem strangely plausible? As governors call up the National Guard to restore order, as military intervention is threatened by the president, does not a military dictatorship seem strangely plausible? But Christian, citizen of God's kingdom, let's remember, none of this is anything unusual for the nations of this world. It's happened before, it it will happen again, and it indeed marks the world in which we live. We remember this as we think of Psalm Psalm 2, the second psalm, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. We have here a declaration of how God sees the raging of the nations. It is a raging against his rule, his reign, his law, his purposes for this world. So this is nothing unusual that we face right now. It might be for us historically, but not as God looks at it. The nations of the earth have always done this. They have always raged against the Lord and against His anointed. His plan for peace. His plan for the salvation of the world. And barring Christ's return, our nation will continue to unravel. And it will eventually fall. But let us not forget the rage of nations, their warring upheaval, their irrational and empty solutions are simply the outworking of man's sustained rebellion against God as king. God's law is spurned. His uh, sin is exalted. Humanity's rebel solutions are devised. And God's rule is scorned. There's only one answer to racism and every other malady of fallen man, and that is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. There is no other answer. We can make some improvements. By God's grace, we will. But there is no solution to the war that is in man's heart. There is no peace in this world apart from the Prince of Peace. There is none. And it would seem that the thousands of years that we have lived proving this would settle the matter. 
but it does not. Each generation continuing to rage against God's anointed. This mindless rejection will continue, but we rejoice to know that it will not continue indefinitely. Remember last week, Psalm 46 and verse 10, where God steps forward amidst the raging, warring nations and says, Be still, silence, quiet, peace, and know that I am God. As we come now to Psalm 47, remember Psalm 46 through 48, this Zion theology, the reign of God from Zion's throne. As we come to 47, God's triumph over the warring rebellion of the nations is completed and there's a place of great celebration and joy that we find here in this psalm. But as we crack the door open into Psalm 47, we hear not warring, but we hear music. We hear singing, exultation. We hear rejoicing and triumphal singing. Psalm 47 calls us indeed to join the joyful song celebrating God's conquest and His ascendant reign over the nations. So we think of the background here just to get our perspective on Psalm 47. As we come to this psalm in background, think of Jerusalem. Think of its situation and think of the temple mount elevated above the city. And think of the triumphal march up to that elevation by a conquering king. That's sort of the backdrop uh, to this psalm. Uh, Indeed, the context of Psalm 47, though we don't know what it is, would conjure up this type of relationship, this type of background. But the psalm seems to be virtually timeless. It points to the final chapter of history. We could even say, in some respect, Psalm 47 is the period on human history. Like the period at the end of the sentence. This is it. This is where it ends. This is how it will be under God's sovereign reign. And so we're called to rejoice in that reign and to sing joyfully in these first four verses. This first stanza ending with the selah there could be divided at the end of verse 5, but we'll take it at verse 4. Sing joyfully, our King conquers the nations. Verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. There's two remarkable features of these first two verses. The first is the call to celebrate God as King is directed to all the peoples. All the peoples. Calling Israel to worship God as King is commonplace, but calling all the peoples to worship Him is not common. It does take place in some of the Psalms, but it's not common. Because these are the people who are against Israel. These are the people who are raging and warring, Psalm 2, against God and His purposes. Verse 3 will provide the explanation for this, but first let me bring out the second remarkable observation here, and that's that this Most High God is to be feared and also joyfully and exuberantly praised. Now, what do you normally do with someone you fear is you cower. You hide, you don't praise and sing. 
But this is the kind of fear, this is the kind of king that fills the heart with joy and graces our lips with song. To know him is to fear him, and to know him is to sing with great joy. Only a believer can understand it. This deep reverence that spills into joyful song in His presence. And notice that this singing is no passive affair, is it? It's accompanied with clapping, characterized as loud songs of joy. Loud songs. We sang that, you hear in that first hymn. Lift loud praises to the Lord, we sang. And does this apply to church and to church's singing? I think on one level it does. Our singing and praise of God should be boisterous and it should be spirited. No other way is worthy of His name. No other way expresses the kind of joy that we find in God alone. So may the Holy Spirit ban forever from Eden Baptist Church all half-hearted, anemic singing in praise of our King. And with the half group we have here now we did all right didn't we with all this empty space here i can't wait till we bring us all together again and we can make these walls shake with the praises of the lord it's right to do so it's only fitting to do so to sing as loud as you can within reason so it works but i think there's a sense here where this does not apply to church singing I think it's right for us to recognize this. The psalm is not a picture of the rhythm of habitual weekly worship. In view here, rather, is a consummating event, a victorious king going to the heights and being praised in this great victory. I think I can illustrate better than looking at our church singing and looking to last summer when our family went to a Minnesota Twins game. It was a beautiful night. Just a gorgeous night for baseball. I just loved being outside. And the game was really good and came down to the last inning. I don't remember if it was tie or the Twins were down one. But they brought a pinch hitter up in the bottom of the ninth inning. And you guessed it or I wouldn't be telling you the story, right? <laughs> he hit a towering home run to center field. And it, just hold the ball up there in the air for a moment, but Dan Miller, I watch games like I'm reading a book. I, I'm not very loud. I just study them. I study everything. I'm watching everything like I'm reading a book. Something big has to happen for me to respond. When that ball got smacked, and it was clear from the crack of the bat, it was out of there, I jumped to my feet screaming at the top of my lungs as did everyone else. Nobody thought of themselves. It was so loud. Clapping, yelling, jumping up and down. It was a perfect way to end a game. That, I think, is more the scene here. More than the routine singing of the church, which should be boisterous and strong, this is more the clapping and yelling and, and, and rejoicing at this great conquering king who has come and put all history to an end and brought it to its final conclusion with great joy for his people. And so I think of all these sports events. Remember them? Uh, we used to have those things. But I think of these sports events. I really do think of this from time to time when 
our team wins, when the championship is won, and you hear fans just giving all that they have to scream and yell and rejoice at this stupid little game that got won. And I think what it is, that's a prophecy of what will be. There's something in the heart of sports fans that wants to cheer, wants to say, we won, and wants to let everybody on earth know it. That's where we are here. After all of history and all of its failure, the King of Kings rises to His place in ascension and all of earth rejoices in song. Screaming, yelling, clapping, stamping their feet and singing songs of praise to Him. It's a triumphal celebration of the warrior king and final victory. Now, let me come back to it. Why are the peoples here? Why not just Israel? Even though Israel is certainly the direct context here, why the peoples of the nations invited to this celebration? Notice verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. There's no more warring because God has subdued the nations. Who are, who's the us in the hour? The us in the hour here clearly is Israel. And the most obvious context is Israel's conquest of the promised land when God subdued nations under their feet. But there is certainly end time foreshadowing here as well. The universal focus of all people singing loud songs of joy, not of just being conquered, but of joy, and God who reigns over all the earth it's, it's like the conquest of the promised land is just a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of how everything will end. All of God's enemies will be placed under His feet. It will all be over in that sense. He is the king over all the earth, verse 2. There were inferior kings in the ancient world. They ruled generally over just a, a walled fortress and a little bit of the land that was around it. But there were greater kings who ruled over inferior kings. Not only their own city, but also other, other kings who had to pay them tribute. But of all the great kings in human history, none has ever ruled the earth. They've tried... And they've always tried by doing this. I'm going to rule the earth, and I'm going to do it by killing you. And I'm going to rule this earth. You just watch me. And they've all failed miserably. But this king will rule the earth. The entire earth under his gracious reign in perfection. That day will come. And the psalmist, I then, I think, it, think it's certainly set on that yet future day when the vision is fully realized. Now having subdued the nations, verse 3, having subjected Israel's enemies to her, verse 4, the positive side of this is he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. That is, God chose Israel's heritage being that he bequeathed to them the promised land. He's conquered the nations. He's risen to this, this seat of prominence, but has done so by conquering the nations and giving to Israel this land that they have conquered and now divided among the tribes. 
The pride of Jacob, verse 4, is what? The pride of Jacob is the land. The land that God has given them. They take pride in God who gives them this land. And they are the people whom he loves. Reminds us of Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. Why did he love you? Why does he love any of us? Not because we have earned that love but because he chose to love us. That's always the answer. It is his sovereign choice to say, this one is mine. I love you. You don't earn it, but you receive it from a gracious God. I love you. And he loved Israel. And for that reason, subjected peoples under their feet. And so these nations now are coming to rejoice. We end the first stanza there and then move to the second, which again is a call to sing joyfully. Our king rules the nations. He conquers the nations, but now rules the nations. And here we will come to the understanding of how all the nations are singing joyfully to him. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Gone up with a shout. That is, he ascends the temple mount, that prominent hill, above an elevated point rimmed by the valley, the hills and the valleys around Jerusalem. So picture perhaps this pulpit kind of as the point of a little hill that juts out with two valleys cutting sharply around that point. The city of Jerusalem sitting on that point, the city of David particularly at that time, and then up above it, the Temple Mount. That mountain kind of having a commanding view over these valleys. Let me give you just a bit of a picture of it. Sort of highlighted here, this temple mount area at the top right of the picture. Elevated above the city and looking over these valleys. So the valleys there, on cutting around that little point out there. Notice the red arrow. I'm going to give you a picture today of that valley. On, on this, it kind of looks like a, a little gentle slope. It's a pretty significant hill as you think of that. So you're, you're kind of looking down that red line that's there. You're looking at that now on the yellow arrow there. So you, you have a pretty significant valley cutting around both sides of this point with the temple up above. This is what's in view here. God has gone up. God has gone up, that is, as a king would go up to this high point, so God has come up to this controlling place of glory and honor among the nations and in history. And he's gone up with the sound of a trumpet, that is, the trumpet, a ram's horn, sounding the coming of a king. I was, uh, when I took this picture, in fact, um, where is it? On the trip when Beth and I were there, as you sent us there some years back, we were shopping in Jerusalem. I don't remember what we were doing. We were just standing out on the street. And without announcement, a shop owner came out of his shop. He got a ram's horn and blew on it. Boo! And I mean, it got everybody's attention. I have no idea what he was doing other than that. I guess he just wanted to say, my shop is here. Come and see me. We didn't, but... 
uh, he really got our attention. And that's what these ram's horns do. They announce something. Everybody stops and looks and listens. What is it? It's the king. He has gone up to his high place. And what's the appropriate response? There's only one. Verse 6. Notice this response. Verse 6 and how it's emphasized. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm or a masculine. Notice again that when this king conquers the earth, the result is joy and rejoicing. The holy hill pulsates with the glad praises of those who celebrate the king's triumph. The psalm or maskil, the Hebrew words related to, uh, to wisdom and the study of wisdom. So it, it puts together what we always see in biblical context, and that is that biblical praise hinges on deep contemplation of words. It never turns merely on the pleasure of music, and nothing wrong with the pleasure of music. It's never just that among God's people. There's always a contemplation of words. Paul said, I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And how we should be thankful and rejoice, Eden Baptist Church, at the heritage of singing songs of praise to the King. We sing, rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Reflecting the very spirit of this psalm. We sing, O oh, the Lord, our strength and song, highest praise to Him belongs. Christ the Lord, the conquering King. Your name we raise, your triumphs sing. Praise the Lord, our mighty warrior. Praise the Lord, the glorious one. By His hand we stand in victory. By His name we overcome. Spurgeon on this passage wrote a hymn and said this. Think of how beautifully it captures the idea. See thy king whose realm extends even to earth's remotest ends gladly shall the nations own him their lord and god alone clap their hands with holy mirth hail him monarch of the earth what a joy it is to sing such songs in anticipation of this day and the people sing why the peoples not just israel but the people sing why Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. This is it. This encapsulates the whole point. The ascended victorious King now sits on His glorious throne reigning over the nations. The future aspect is very clear here. This, this is a picture of David coming to this place. It's a picture of Israel conquering the land it's certainly a picture of kings who won victories in Israel's past, but ultimately it is looking forward to the ultimate victory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns over the nations. 
And this future aspect comes out in verse 9. An amazing verse. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God and He is highly exalted. Let's sit in this verse for just a few moments. As the people of the God of Abraham. The nations come as the people of the God of Abraham. As could be translated with, but it really doesn't change the meaning. They come as one with the people of Abraham. So there here is a prophecy of the coming of the nations to the faith of Abraham in Messiah. There is a fulfillment here of Genesis chapter 12. And the nations of the earth blessed through Abraham. In fact, what we have here is a reversal of Genesis 11. Remember Genesis 6 and the judgment of the earth as there was rebellion against God. And then as we come to Genesis 11, once again mankind rises up to rebel and reject God and to build this platform where they will, and this tower that will announce the glories of man. What did God do? He divided the tongues. Remember, he split them up in different tongues, and people ran from each other in fear, and we've done a pretty good job of staying divided since then. But there's a day coming when that division will be over. And where was it announced so beautifully in Acts 2? as the Holy Spirit by Jesus is poured out upon those believers, and they began to speak in tongues where everyone understood the language that they were speaking, their various languages, as God re, reworked Genesis 11 into blessing in Acts 2 as an anticipation of the end day when all peoples will bless the Lord. All voices lifting up, not in rebellion against the king, but in worship of the king. For the shields belong to God. This is a beautiful phrase. What does that mean? The shields belong to God. Everything belongs to God. But the point is, the shields are the most prominent weapon of an army. They're the most identifiable mark of the army. Have you ever seen in a history book or watch a movie of an ancient warfare and you see these shields they they they're like team jerseys i mean you got to know whose shields yours because you're going to be standing with them in this hand-to-hand combat very important and then when a conqueror would defeat an army sometimes they would take these shields as trophies of war and display them in the in the houses of their gods to say our god has won well, at this point, all the shields of earth belong to the Lord. All the war machines have been wrecked and set aside and now stand as a testament to His victory. And all the peoples praise Him. God has conquered every army, subdued every king, reigns alone over a world bursting with joy in His presence. A world in which He is highly exalted. This is a thing that I think should just cause our heart to ache and hurt for this world. The calls for justice, the calls for righteousness, the calls to fix this broken world are just swirling foolishness apart from Jesus Christ. But there's going to be a day that comes 
when the nations of the world, those who now identify with the God of Abraham, are going to say, this is the answer we've been looking for through all of history. One king, ruling in perfect righteousness over all the earth, filling every heart with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We're a long way from that day, aren't we? It certainly seems like it, or maybe not. But we know as we think of Psalm 47 as the period at the end of human history, we think of the words of Jesus, and notice the connections here. I don't know how purposeful they are, but they certainly connect. Knowing the Lord, they probably were intended to connect to a lot of things, but certainly in John 12, now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. I've come in, and there will be those that walk the narrow path and those that walk the broad road. There will be those that choose the way of life and those that choose the way of death. Judgment has come into the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I have come in war as a conqueror to defeat Satan. There will be a great war here as I defeat death. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see it there? Notice that word in verse 5, gone up. See verse 5, gone up. And verse 9 at the end, highly exalted. Those are actually the same Hebrew word, to lift up. And here Jesus says, I will be lifted up. As the great king who goes to this prominent height, I will be lifted up. And when I do this, as I die the death of sinners, I will draw all people to myself. All peoples will come to Christ as Savior. Those who trust Him will come to God through Him. He is lifted up on the cross. He conquers Satan. He leads captives in His triumphal ascension to God's right hand. And He reigns today from heaven's throne. And it is the nations in rebellion against Him now that reject this rule. When will God end the rebellion? Why does He permit man to rage against His rule in so many harmful ways? Looking at our world, can we conclude that God is even actually reigning? Is He really there? Is He doing anything? Why let all this go on? One thing we need to face very pointedly is that our King rules. He does not reveal to us all of His plans. He does not make it clear all of what He is doing. We cannot know why God ordains what He does in this fallen world. All we can do is trust Him and know that we know where it will end. And in that we can rest. We can trust His way that we don't always understand it. And I think there's a warning to us in a, particularly in days such as we are facing now. And that is to try to figure out all that God's thinking and doing. Let the world and its strivings be enigmatic to you. Let them be confusing to some extent. Without explanation. It's okay. The danger is that we can begin to say, this is what God's doing, this is what God thinks, I have this all figured out. We don't. He does. And I can be at peace with that. 
Suffice it simply to trust the King. Suffice it to sing His praises, to rest in His eternal purposes, but to never lose perspective of what's going on. The nations rage, but God reigns and will reign eternally. Jesus lifted up on the cross has won perfect justice and righteousness for His people and He will rule. So know this, Christian. Know it deep in your bones. God has this. What's wrong with this nation? Ultimately, I don't need to know. Ultimately, I don't need to solve it. Ultimately, I need to trust that He's got this covered. He will conquer He does rule the nations. He will reign with perfect righteousness. And He will end all warring. And we take into this broken world the message of a King who has conquered and will conquer and will save. And will answer every doubt and question in fullness. One day all born-again peoples from the nations and all ethnicities of the earth will exalt in Christ in His conquest, in His reign. The only course of wisdom now then is for us to submit to that reign, to rest your hope in it, to sing Christ's praises in this discordant world. So we sing His praises here until we're invited to join the chorus of heaven and sing there. Worthy is the Lamb, as Revelation describes And we will sing worthy is the Lamb with the redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. Singing in that kingdom where wars and tears will be vanquished and replaced by fullness of joy in God our eternal reward. That is our future. That is our day. And Christian, it is not dismissive of this world's problems to say that is the answer. There is no other. And as I said, we've taken thousands of years to prove this. Christ reigns, will reign for all eternity. Our task is to take that message into this world, that message of reconciliation with God, that message of final triumph, and say to unbelievers, you must choose. You must choose. Are you with Christ or are you against Him? And there may be war and raging in your own soul against Christ. You don't know why it is necessary to trust Him, to walk in His presence, to have sins forgiven. I would say one other thing that I know about you, and that's you don't understand this song. There is a God to fear. There is a judgment to come. And there is a God who puts His grace in our hearts and produces not a fear that cowers, but one that sings. We long for you to enter into that relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. But here it is before us in John 12. He was lifted up on the cross to bear the penalty of sin. And He will draw all of His people to Him. Ultimately, in joyful song for eternity. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for this promise that we find in Psalm 47, for the way in which Your Word develops this theme and through the ages draws us ever closer 
to the day when all the peoples will praise you, when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We plead for that day, and we rejoice now to name ourselves, to take on the name of the people of Abraham, the people of faith, the people of trust in Messiah. Lord, we rejoice also to have the message to carry, and I pray that you'd even draw today anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior. And may we who do now sing for joy to the Lord and rejoice that you are King and you rule from heaven's throne. Bring the day of fulfillment, but until then, may you find us faithful. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.